Yeah, that last song that we were singing there just got me thinking about God, got me thinking about how amazing he really is and how powerful he really is. And it's, it's true, he's got the, the power to calm the winds and the waves. And if you think about that reference, it's to Jesus calming the storm. And you think about the fact that they're on the, the Sea of Galilee and the, the waves are raging and the storm is raging all around. And these seasoned fishermen are terrified and they don't know what's going on. And they're afraid that the, the boat is going to capsize on them. And they're worried and they're, they're fearful and they go to Jesus and they wake Jesus up and they say, hey, you know, teacher, we're going to drown. Save us. And he wakes up and he looks out at them and he goes, don't you, don't you trust in me? And he stands up and he rebukes the sea and the sea goes calm immediately. It doesn't wind down and then go calm. No, it stops. The wind and the waves, it says in the text, it, it, they, they cease. Our God is amazing. If you think of Exodus, and you think of everything that God did in the book of Exodus to deliver his people, including hardening the heart of Pharaoh so that he could get glory over Pharaoh, so that he could show the most powerful man in the world that he was God, not him, and that he could free his people, and then he splits the Red Sea, and they walk across dry land. You think of that, and you have to think, man, my God is amazing. Think about Joseph's life and everything that Joseph went through, and you have to think, man, my God is amazing. You think about Paul's life and everything that Paul goes through and you think, man, my God is amazing. You think about maybe everything that you've gone through as you look back over your life and you think, man, my, my God is amazing. See, a lot of times we can look back, we can look into the past, we can look into everything that God has done and conclude, wow, God is amazing. But y'all, that's only part of the story because there's so much that God has left to do. And that is God, that, that God is, is going to do. And if we understand all that God is going to do in front of us, we're going to conclude the same thing. And that is, wow, God is amazing. Daniel chapter 2, last week we looked at the, the first part of Neb's dream, at least the account of it. And how Daniel and his three friends were put in a, a spot where they had to tell not only the dream, but also the interpretation. Or otherwise they were going to, they were going to be killed on the spot. And the death warrant had been signed and yet they kept their wits about them. And Daniel, it says, answered with prudence and discretion. And he went back before Arioch, the king's guard, and said, hey, give me a minute. Let me go before the Lord, and then I, I may have the answer for the king. And sure enough, Daniel went with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and he prayed. And he prayed, and he asked the, that the Lord would, would reveal the dream and reveal the interpretation. In verse 19 of chapter 2, it says that God did just that, revealed it to Daniel. And Daniel stopped and turned around and gave thanks and praise and glory in honor to God. And and then went in before Nebuchadnezzar, and we ended last week by looking at Daniel coming in before the king, and the king's going, okay, are, are you the one? Do you have the interpretation for me? And Daniel looked at him, and he said, no, I, I don't have anything. I've got nothing. But there's a God who has your dream and its interpretation. So this Sunday, as we come to our text in chapter 2, the rest of it, we're going to look at the dream. We're going to look at what the, the content of the dream was and its interpretation. And, and as it unfolds, it's important for you to remember the context of when this is happening. This is 7th century BC. This is the, the la later part of the, the 7th century BC, early 600 BC into the, the beginnings of the, the 500s BC. And Daniel's sitting here and he's going to lay out for us through Nebuchadnezzar's dream pretty much the rest of world history. 
And he's going to do that because this is the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, the dream that God put on Nebuchadnezzar's mind and on his heart to lay out what was going to come and what was going to come after him. So pick up again in verse 29, and let's read the first couple of verses. It says, To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So start there. Daniel identifies not only the dream, but he even even goes and one-ups the king on this. He's like, let me tell you about what you fell asleep thinking about. He says, as you fell asleep, you were thinking about what would be after this. Maybe some of you do that when you go to bed as well. You lay there in bed and you think about, man, what's, what's it going to be like in my future? What's my life going to be like down the road? What's next for me? What's it going to be like when I graduate? What's it going to be like when I get my job, my career job? What's it going to be like when I get married? What's it going to be like when I have kids? What's it going to be like when I have a house that's my own? What's it going to be like? And we spend so much time dreaming about and fantasizing about even the, the, the future and what that reality is going to be like. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was doing that And Daniel says, you were thinking about that, and then you fell asleep, and God answered you. says, he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. You fell asleep, Neb, wondering, hey, what's next? And God said, let me tell you. And he gave you this dream that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Look at verse 31. You saw, O king, here's the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. When you hear image, think the word statue, okay? A great image, a great statue. And this image, this statue, mighty and exceeding in, in brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening, terrifying. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron the clay, the bronze, the silver, and all the gold, all together they were broken in pieces and became like fine chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone, the stone that struck the image, that became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel gives him the dream. And you see, this is not fuzzy language. Daniel's not just kind of saying, well, you had a dream about what would happen in the future, king. No, he's, he's giving him the details. He's saying, you saw this gigantic statue. Now, statues were commonplace during this time. Kings would often erect statues to, to symbolize themselves and their power and their greatness. Think about the next chapter in Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar creates this gigantic 90 foot by 9 foot statue that's plated in gold. And it's there to represent him and his glory and his power. And he wants everybody to bow down to it, Right? So these statues were, were common among kings, uh, among foreign kings. And so Daniel says, you saw a statue, and so the statue wouldn't have been troubling, but the way the statue appeared, it said, was, was terrifying to the king. I think the reason is, is because of all the different materials that were contained in the statue. You had the head that was gold, you had the, the chest that was silver and the arms that were silver, you had the middle and thighs that were bronze. And then you had the legs of iron and, the, and then the feet of iron and clay. And, and then, then there was this rock, this rock that got cut out of a mountain, but not by hands. And then the rock demolishes the statue. So this is what left Neb shook. And you got to imagine that he woke up thinking, okay, who is the statue? Is it me? What, what, who does that represent? 
why were there so many different materials there? What, what does that mean? Why did the materials decrease in value? It starts with gold and it ends with clay. What, what, what gives there? What's the story there? And what about this, this rock that shatters the entire thing? What, what is going on? This is what left Nebuchadnezzar unable to fall asleep again. And this is what he wanted the interpretation to. This is what he wanted the meaning of. This is what he called all the wise men together and said, hey, tell me what I dreamt and what it means. And they all came in and they're unable to do it. And yet Daniel comes in because God had given him the, the dream and he says, this is what you dreamt. And he lays it out for the king. And then he gives him the interpretation. Pick up in verse 36. He says, this was the dream. Now we, because it's Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, right? Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings. It's a reference to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. That there is unrivaled power contained in this king. He's the most powerful man in the known world world at the time. To you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. So there's interpretation number one. Who's the head? The head is Neb. Not just Babylon, but specifically it's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the head represents you. In all of your kingdom, he says, you're the king of kings. You're the, the, the top. There's no one greater than you on earth, king. You have conquered more peoples. You have spread your, your empire further. You have amassed more treasure, more wealth for you. You are the head of gold. But it's God, king, who has given you the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And all of the children of men. God has given those things to you. Ancient Babylon was a pretty amazing city to behold. Unfortunately, there's no photographs of it for obvious reasons. There's some artist renderings, and those are kind of best guesses at this point in time. But Babylon was a pretty amazing city. When you think about it, it was, from historical records, laid out in a square that was about 14 miles on each side. So as the crow flies, as a direct line of flight, that's about from here to Irvine. And it's 14 miles on each side this city is laid out. The wall around the city was 56 miles long, 300 feet high, and 25 feet thick, and it went underground another 35 feet. It's a massive wall. Nobody's getting through that wall. But even if they did, there was a second wall to the city that was built 75 in, feet inside the first one. So they had two walls that they built around this massive city. The Euphrates River flowed directly through the middle of the city and it allowed for just this amazing irrigation system that Nebuchadnezzar and his team created and designed that allowed him to, to water what became known as one of the seven wonders of the world, which are the hanging gardens of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar designed those and produced those and he was able to, to water them because of the Euphrates River and the richness of the, the fertile ground that was there in Babylon. Inside the city, there were 53 temples. 53 temples to various gods. The main god of the Babylonians was the god Marduk. Besides the 53 temples, there was Nebuchadnezzar's palace, which was considered at the time one of the most amazing buildings ever constructed. So you would walk into Babylon and you would have been blown away to walk there, to see that. You'd have been taken aback and said, wow, this is amazing. The king who rules over this must be something else. And Daniel's saying, yes, you are king. You're the king of kings. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar, you the king of kings, that you have all of this, 
Not because you're something, but because God is everything and he's given you everything. See, God has given you these things, King. The God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And beyond that, he's given into your hand, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You, Neb, are the head of gold. You know, every year, the Babylonians would celebrate the new year by re-enthroning their king. They would have a, a new inauguration every single year, and they were enthroning him as the earthly representative of that false god that I mentioned earlier, Marduk. So they would celebrate and they would say, okay, you are the, the, the earthly representative of Marduk. So we're going to re-enthrone you every single year and recognize that every single year. And Daniel is saying, listen, you're nothing and Marduk is nothing and God is everything. See, the God of the Bible has given you all that you have. Now, you're the head of gold. You're the most valuable. You're the most worthy of all of this statue. And yet all that you have was given to you by God. Nebuchadnezzar was a man that was pretty impressed with himself. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 4 that he's out walking on his palace porch and he looks around Babylon and what does he say? He says, man, look at this. Is this not Babylon that I have built by my mighty power? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was an arrogant and prideful man and, and Daniel is through God trying to humble him and get him to understand that God has given him all of these things and if he would but recognize that, he would see that God has given them to him for one reason and that is for the glory not of Neb but of God. Students, I want you to think about everything that God has given to you. I want you to think about all the good things that God has given to you. And recognize even just that to begin with tonight. Point number one is this. Write it down this way. Acknowledge all that God has given you. Acknowledge everything that God has given to you. It's so easy for us to live this life thinking that we've earned it. We've merited it that we're entitled to it. Y'all, you know what you're entitled to? Nothing. Not a thing. Not even the next breath that you take. You haven't merited any of that. You know what you're entitled to, students? Let me put it bluntly, okay? You're entitled to hell. That's what you're entitled to. That's what you and what I deserve is we deserve hell. We deserve eternal punishment because of our sin and our rebellion against God. And to think any different is to totally misunderstand your sinfulness in God's holiness. And so if you start there and realize, man, at the, the, the foundational, fundamental, basic level, what I deserve is I deserve hell. And yet when you then push back and you see everything that God has given you, in all the good things that he's given you, he's given you clothes on your back, he's given you health, he's given you a roof over your head for most of you, if not all of you, he's given you a family to call your family, he's given you friends, he's given you food that you just had tonight. I know at least for all of you, he's given you dinner tonight, right? When you consider everything that God has given you, how often are you thankful to him for the things that he's given to you? Versus how often do we act entitled for the things that we have? Y'all, God gives you everything that he gives you for one purpose and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. The things that God gives you, he gives you for his glory, not for you. You are stewards of the very breath that you have and the very breath that you have, God has given you so that you would worship him and glorify him. You think, well, man, isn't that self-centered from God? Yes, but that's God. 
God can be nothing other than self-glorifying because he would, if he was to glorify anything other than himself for a, a, a one millisecond, he would cease to be God. And whatever he's glorifying, that's the new God. The very de- definition of God is that he's all about himself. And you know, he has created us for himself. He has given you what you have for him. What are you doing with it? Are you using it for him? Here's the thing, if, if we will realize and recognize that God has given us everything that he's given us for his glory, it will become instruments of eternal reward for us. We will store up treasure for ourselves in heaven by living in and using the things that he's provided for us to, to glorify and exalt Christ. But here's the flip side of that. If we fail to realize that, and if you look at what you have and you say, well, this is mine and my kingdom and I've amassed this and this is my good and my glory, you know what those things are going to become? They're going to become instruments not of eternal reward, but of eternal judgment and damnation. And there are some of you out there that are so comfortable because you've grown up around the church, but I just need to press in on you and say there are some of you out there that are so comfortable thinking that you're saved and listen, you're not You're trusting Christianity by osmosis, by just hanging around the church, and you're comfortable, and you're thinking, well, being a Christian is great because it's, you know, it's fine. It keeps mom and dad happy, and maybe this girl that I'm interested in, she's a Christian, and so she hangs out at church, so I'm going to hang out at church, or whatever your reason is for being here, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and guys, that's not going to get you anywhere. And in the meantime, you're living for all the stuff that you have, not realizing God's given that to you to show you that he is the creator. He is the supplier. He is the one that's given you every good gift, just like he gave Neb that palace and that kingdom and that empire. And he wants you to take it and he wants you to turn around and give him praise and give him thanksgiving and honor him and use it to glorify him. Students, what are you doing with what God has given to you, what God has done for you? Daniel's standing before the most powerful man in the world saying, look, yeah, you've got Babylon, but I need to let you know you, you did nothing for that. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your military. It has nothing to do with your might. You have it because God's given it to you. Wake up, Neb. Realize it. But as glorious as Nebuchadnezzar Babylon was, it wasn't going to last. It was an empire. It was going to fall like every other empire. It was going to come to an end, just like Egypt had fallen to Babylon. Babylon was ultimately also going to fall. Look at verse 39. It says, another kingdom inferior to you, not as good as you, not as, as amazing and impressive as you, another kingdom is going to rise after you. And then after that, yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. These next two kingdoms are described in in one verse because the dream wasn't so much about the the kingdoms as much as it was about the sovereignty of God. For anyone to challenge Babylon at this point in time would have been pretty crazy. For anyone to suggest that Babylon was going to fall would have been pretty nonsensical for them to do. Babylon was the world power. Nobody was going to threaten Babylon. And so Daniel's here to say, you know what, but there's going to be another kingdom that comes after you, Nebuchadnezzar. Another nation, another empire is going to come in. And then after that one, there's going to be yet another one. Ultimately, history would bear out, and we're going to read about it in Daniel chapter 5, that the next empire, the next kingdom to come on the scene is the the kingdom of the Medo-Persians that ultimately became the Persian Empire. And that comes on the scene and, and supplants Babylon. 
Babylon is gone. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. All of his descendants are now gone. And now the, the new empire is on the scene. And they were there. And yeah, their, their empire would cover more territory than Babylon, but they wouldn't ever reach the opulence and the wealth and the majesty of Babylon. And they would be on the scene for a little while. And then after that, they would also meet their own end. And the next world empire, the next world power to follow the Medo-Persians would be the, the Greeks. And the Greeks would come on the scene, and that one, it says, was going to rule over all the earth. We know who the, the commander of the Greek army and eventually the emperor of the Greek empire was that would accomplish all of that? A guy named that, that I'm sure you studied in history, named Alexander the, Alexander the Great, would come on the scene. And he would spread out his empire over all of the earth. But then that empire, too, would have its own deficiencies eventually. Alexander would die and not having a solid succession plan in place, he would have four generals that would rise up and divide his empire into four separate districts and regions. And those would eventually fall prey to another empire that would come. And that's described for us in Daniel chapter 2 verse 40. That's the iron empire. There shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. In other words, all that came before what empire would Greece eventually fall to? Rome. Rome. Rome comes on the scene. And Rome is the Iron Empire. And Rome would be an empire whose military might would be like none that had come before it. They would spread fast and vast and far and wide. And their power was unmatched and unrivaled. And it would last for eons. It would last for ages to come. All the way through the rest of the Old Testament and into the dawn of the New Testament to the time of Christ and into the 300s and even part of the Roman Empire because it divided, it split, remember, would last all, all the way into the, the, the 1000s AD. This was a, an enormous empire and it's an empire that would break to pieces and shatter all things and crush and break and shatter and destroy any that stood in its opposition. If you read Roman history, you see that. All over the place. They were unmatched and unrivaled in their military prowess. These next three kingdoms following Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, again, are, are less the focus of this section. What is the focus of this section? What is the concern here? Is that these empires would be changed out one after another, after another, after another. Neb, your empire is going to come to an end. And the empire that conquers you, that's going to come to an end. And the next one up, that, that one's going to come to an end. And the next one up, you know, that one's going to come to an end. So now does it make sense why Daniel in chapter 2 earlier that we read last week says, God, you are the God that changes out kings. You're the one that installs kings and removes kings. You're the one that, that changes out seasons and brings in seasons. God, you are the sovereign God over world history. And he's saying, look, look at the empires. They rise and they fall, and yet, God, you remain the same. Here's what I want you to realize tonight, and that's this. That God is your God. The God that changes out the empires is the God that loves you, that cares about you, that gave Christ for you. Point number two tonight, write it down this way. Realize the God of these empires is the God of your today. Realize the God of these empires is the God of your today. This God who turned over Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. This God who would turn over Nebuchadnezzar to Darius the, the Mede. This God who would turn over the Medes to the Greeks and the Greeks to the Romans, this is the same God who says in Romans 8, 28 that he is working all things together for your good. 
The same God who loves you, the same God who gave Christ for you. In fact, this is the same God that wrote Psalm 139, where we read statements like this, where David's speaking of the knowledge that God has of him, which is the same knowledge that God has of you. And we read this in Psalm 139, when David says, God, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Think about that. God's aware when you sit down and when you stand up. You discern, David says, you you discern, you know my thoughts from afar. You know my thoughts, Lord. You know the, the, the thoughts that I entertain that I never say. He says, you, you search out my path and my lying down. You know my way, God. You know everywhere that I go. You know everywhere that I've been. You know when I'm done at the end of the day, when I lay down to go to sleep, God, you are aware. David is saying, you, you know me to this depth and this level. You are acquainted with all my ways. He goes on, he says, look, God, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. Since the words that you speak, God knows before you even speak them. Let me press in on you a little bit. If you put on a show for your church family and you clean up what you talk about while you're here, why? If outside of here, if, if when you're not around Christians, you're, you're just spewing filth, do you think you're fooling God? You're not. Listen, y'all, he's the God that changed out empires. If you think that you're smarter than him, that you're outsmarting him, number one, you're prideful and you're arrogant beyond measure. And number two, you have a rude awakening coming. Because when you die and you stand before him, he's going to cast you into the pit of hell. So let me press in and say, quit playing the games. And and let me just tell you out there, I, I know who some of you are that are playing the games. And if I know, he knows. He says, you hem me in behind and before. That's, a, that's the protection of the Lord over us. That if you are in Christ, he has hemmed you in. He's keeping you. He's protecting you. He's guarding you. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. You put your hand of favor upon my life, God. You formed my inward parts. Now we're getting down to the nitty gritty of how intimate God knows us. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes, they saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Y'all, God knows you to that depth. And if you're a Christian, that should be unbelievably encouraging to you because this is the God who changes kings and, and, and removes kings and sets kings up and changes out seasons. That's that God and he knows you to that level. So whatever you're going through right now, Christian, he knows you to that level. Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged that he cares about you to that depth and is aware of who you are and where you are and what he has you there for. Be encouraged by that. Whatever you're up against, he is worthy of your confidence. If he's orchestrated the stage of world powers, he's orchestrated the stage of your life. He's able to administer the kingdoms. He's able to administer your life. So trust him. 
enough. He's more powerful than Rome. He's more powerful than whatever stands against you tonight. I guarantee it. This fifth kingdom is a weird one. Verse 41, you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, shall be left over. Just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. Verse 42, and as the, of the toes of the feet, they were partly of iron and partly of clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as the iron does not mix with clay. Again, this is a, a weird one. It's not as strong as the one that came before it because it's, it, there's some iron there, but there's a lot of clay there. And iron and clay, they, they don't adhere well to one another. And so this kingdom is brittle and this kingdom is fractured and this kingdom is divided. And this is the final kingdom before this stone comes and demolishes the whole thing. So who's the final kingdom? Well, we got to figure out what the options are. There's really two options. Option one would say that this final kingdom was the, the decline of, of the Roman Empire. That as the Roman Empire eventually split and fractured, that this was the, the final kingdom. And that the rock was Jesus' first coming. The problem with that is the rock destroys the statue. And the statue, if it represents the, the rule of man, which is what I think it represents... The statue is the rule of man over the, the world. If the statue represents that and the rock destroys the statue, then we have a problem because today we look around and we still see the rule of man on clear display, don't we? There's still earthly kings and rulers here, yes? Yeah. So what's option number two? Well, option number two is that this is a future empire that we haven't yet realized. That's going to be a, a confederacy of kings. There's going to be ten kings that join together that rule over this empire. And that it's going to be divided. It's not going to be as strong. It's not going to be as united because you've got 10 heads that are all trying to rule together. And that this is a, a future kingdom that's going to mark the end times. And the, the rock, when it comes, that's Christ's final and ultimate return to set up his earthly kingdom. And then the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is Daniel looking all the way forward to a time that's even yet future from where we sit tonight. In Revelation chapter 17, we read John say this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast and was full of blasphemous names. And notice, the beast had seven, horns, seven heads and ten horns. There's that number ten again. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. This is the Antichrist. Because it was and is not and is to come. This is why people think that the Antichrist is going to die and then be resurrected. Although elsewhere in Revelation it says he's going to have a, a wound that appears mortal. 
So it's going to be a great deception even there to mimic the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 9, though, of Revelation 17. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, one is and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. I know this is confusing, but just track with me for a second. And the 10 horns that you saw, here's what I want you to listen to. And the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they will receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. That last verse, I probably should have just read that last verse instead of all the other stuff. Revelation 17, 12. The 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power. This is an empire yet to come in the future. So these 10 kings are going to arise and then what's going to happen? The rock's going to come. What's one thing that we do know? Who's the rock? It's the Sunday school answer. G, there you go. Rhymes with Shemesis, right? It starts with a J. Jesus, right? And this rock is going to come, and it says this in verse 44 of chapter 2 of Daniel. It says, in those days, the, king, the kings of the God of heaven will set up a, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. In the days of those kings, sorry, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. The only kingdom that will remain forever and ever and ever and ever is the kingdom of Jesus Christ that is yet future. And so when Christ comes back, he is the rock set up by God, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, a kingdom that will never be left to another people, a kingdom that will break in pieces all the previous kingdoms. This kingdom can only be the kingdom of God with Christ as the ruler. You know, all these empires represent the, the rule of men over this world. And Daniel's point here is there's a day that's coming where the rule of men will end and the rule of God will begin forever and ever. Never to be challenged again. That kingdom is coming. And here's what I want to impress upon you all tonight. We need to be ready for that kingdom. The rock is coming. I feel like the rock actor probably said that at some point in time. The rock is coming. Totally off track. The rock is coming. The rock Jesus is coming. And he's going to set up this final kingdom. The question tonight is, are you ready for it? Point number three, final point tonight is this. Prepare for your place in the final kingdom. Prepare for your place in the final kingdom. Because that is going to come. You say, okay, what does all of this mean for me? Man, this is like world history. And I feel like I left that behind because I'm not a history major. And I don't know what's going on. And this empire, that empire, this empire. Then now there's the rock. And what am I supposed to do with this? You need to know that the rock's coming because all the other ones have, except for this brittle final kingdom. And, and that will come because the Bible says it will. We can trust it will. But the rock is going to come. And that's the most important one. And are you ready for it? People want to know, man, is, is China going to be the next world power? Is Russia going to be the next world power? Is the United States ever going to rebound? I, I, I don't know. But I do know who is ultimately coming, and that's Jesus. And let me tell you how Jesus is coming back. Revelation 19, this is far less confusing and far more straightforward. And quite honestly, if you're not in Christ, this should be far more terrifying for you than what I just read from Revelation 17. Revelation 19, I call this the anti-Hobby Lobby Jesus, and you'll find out why says this, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges 
and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows by himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus coming back, and he's wearing a robe dipped in blood. You know what the robe, the blood of the, the robe is? His enemies. Okay, this is not Jesus, meek and humble. This is not Jim Caviezel hanging on some cross with Hollywood makeup on. This is Jesus, the warrior king, and it goes on and he says he's, he's going to have a sword that comes from his mouth with which to strike down the nations and he's going to rule them with a rod of iron and he's going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Some of you are going to be in that winepress and your blood is going to flow under the judgment of Christ because you're playing games with him. And you need to stop playing games. You need to get ready for his return and ask yourself, am I ready for it tonight? Because he could come back tonight. And there's no second chances. There is no purgatory. Purgatory is not a thing. That's an unbiblical false doctrine that the Catholic Church invented to make them feel better about living like heathens. That you'll have a second chance. Or maybe the book that came out a while ago by Rob Bell that says love wins. Love wins at the cross. It doesn't win at the return of Christ. What wins at the return of Christ is righteousness and justice and wrath. There are no second chances. So you do business with Jesus now or you do business with Jesus then. You do business with him now as your savior or you do business with him then as your judge. But let's just get things straight, y'all. If, if you're just flirting with Christianity and flirting with Christ, you're going to be found on the wrong end of that equation. Are you ready for that kingdom? Christian, you who are here tonight and you're going, yes, I'm ready for it. Awesome. Are, are you hoping in that kingdom? You know, Daniel wasn't sitting there hoping in the next empire to follow Babylon. He didn't hope for the next king to follow Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't hope that things would just get a little bit better on earth. He didn't panic when things went from bad to worse. No, he remained fixated and focused on God as the sovereign ruler and wanting to be with him. Right? Are you, do you want to be with Jesus? Do you want that kingdom? And if you do, what are you doing right now to prepare for it? Y'all, if you knew that Switzerland was going to invade the United States and take over, you would be like, wanted to eat Swedish meatballs? and learn Swedish language, and buy stuff from Ikea, so that you could be ready for the Swedes to come in and be like, dude, I'm ready for you. I love your food, I can talk like you do, and I've got all this cheap furniture that falls apart in my house. Bring it, Swedes, right? You know, we know Jesus is coming back. When the Bible says that the kingdoms of this earth are gonna become the kingdom of our God, Right? We know that that's going to happen. That's what Daniel's laying out for Nebuchadnezzar here. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is what's coming, king. You want to know. You fell asleep wondering, hey, what's going to be next? <laughs> here it is. What are you doing to get ready for it? Are you thinking about what eternity is going to be like? Are you making tough decisions to be obedient to the Lord? Are you focused there instead of being focused here? 
Y'all, some of you are so focused here, you're, you're sacrificing eternity on the altar of the immediate because you want to be in a relationship with a girl or you want to be in a relationship with this guy or you want this status or you want this thing or you want this feeling. Eternity is going to come crashing down on you like a ton of bricks. And you're going to be conscious of the the missed opportunity when you're in hell. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus? And how the rich man was desperate for Lazarus to give him but a drop of water to cool his tongue? And then when that wasn't an option, you remember what the rich man said to Lazarus? He said, please, please, Abraham, send him back to my family so that they don't end up where I am. He was aware of his blown opportunity, his missed opportunity. And if some of you don't get right with Christ soon and even now and you die, you are going to spend eternity with a regret that you have never experienced before. And I don't know how to put it before you any stronger than I have tonight. Please stop playing games. Please stop loving this world. It's not worth it. What are you doing to get ready for the return of the Lord? Daniel lays it out. And at the end, he says this. He says, a great God, verse 45. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. (laughs) He did not get it. He falls down to worship Daniel. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. David made a request to the king, and he appointed also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. And this sets the stage for chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and following. But guys, like I said at the beginning, a lot of times we look back and we say, wow, how amazing is our God because of what he's done. But with this passage tonight, y'all, I, wanna, I want you to, to look forward and realize there's a lot that's amazing that he's still going to do. You say, man, how amazing is God based on everything that he's going to do? And, and now we know because we've read about it in the Bible, in the word of God that is sure and certain that this rock kingdom is coming. And the king of that kingdom is coming back. And when he does, it's not to save, but to bring judgment and war on his enemies. Are you ready for that kingdom? Because that's next. That's next. Is the return of Christ. There's nothing else that we're waiting for but Jesus to come back. Are you ready?
Are you ready to die tonight? Because if there's anything that COVID has taught us, is that we have no control over anything. Your health can be gone in an instant. Are you ready for that? Students, let me just urge you, beg you, plead you, plead with you. If you know in your heart that you've just been playing games, that you've just been hanging out around the church, but never given your life to Christ, do it tonight. Do it tonight. It's the most important decision that you could make. And whatever you'd have to give up, give it up. Because it's so much more worth it to be in Christ and secure in him and know that come what may, you are with the Lord and you will be ready for his return. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that you would be kind to us, that you would be gracious to us, Lord, that you would help us to understand just how much you've loved us to give Christ for us so that we can be ready for your return. I pray that the students that might be here tonight that are just hanging around, that are here, but they're not here because they love you. They're not here because they've got a relationship with you. They're here for whatever reason. God, I pray that you would just press in on them, Lord. I pray that you would destroy every stronghold in their life, every idol in their life, God. until they realize that you are worth more than all of them. God, we don't know what tomorrow holds you do. We don't know what the rest of the night holds you do. We do know from a big picture view what's coming because you've revealed it to us in your word. And now it's on us to say, okay, am I ready for that? So Lord, we pray and we ask and we beg that we would be a church ready for the return of Christ, busy about what you have called us to do, and not caught up in the minutia of earthly rulers and kings and presidents and all of that, Lord. But focused on what you want from us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.